0: Hello and welcome to episode 131 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. And my very special guest today is Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson, an assistant professor in the Department of History at Johns Hopkins University, and a fellow at the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Studies at Harvard University. Dr. Johnson is the author of Wicked Flesh, Black Women, Intimacy, and Freedom in the Atlantic World, published in 2020 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. And this won the 2020 Kemper and Lila Williams Prize for Louisiana History. Her work has also appeared in journals like Slavery and Abolition, The Black Scholar, American Quarterly, Journal of African American History, and more. Dr. Johnson is also a digital humanist who explores ways that digital and social media disseminate and create historical narratives. She is the director of Life Code, Digital Humanities Against Enclosure. She's also the founding curator of ADPHD projects, co-organizer of the Queering Slavery Working Group, and blogs at Diaspora Hypertext. You can follow Dr. Johnson on Twitter at JMJ AFRX. Welcome, Jessica. Was there a particular moment of revelation that inspired you to become an historian, or was it always meant to be?
1: You know, this is a um, really great question, and and first of all, thank you, Peter, for having me on. Um, I've um, followed you know the podcast for many many years, so it's uh, it's really exciting to to be here and to be part of the podcast community here. Um, so I have been working on um, thinking about histories of slavery and diaspora. Um, since I was an undergraduate, I would say in a kind of academic way. Um, so I was first introduced to thinking about um, African-American history in particular um, through Leslie Brown, who was a professor at uh, WashU where I did my undergrad. Um, I'm a student of Rafia Zafer who um, has done amazing work on Harriet Jacobs, um, has done amazing, has an amazing book out now on um, recipes as ways of thinking about um, historical texts and. And Black literature. Uh, so I'm very much a student of um, Black women scholars and Black historians. Um, Tim Parsons, um, the class that he uh, taught on. Um, Um, an African history course, the kind of general African history, 20th century modern African history course, really kind of was an amazing course that really reshaped how I understood what a source was and what sources can do, which I think is something that anybody doing African diaspora, African history knows is so critical to the work that we do, really kind of rethinking text and narrative and and archive as a a project. Um, So, you know, that was work that, you know, in some ways that, that was always about you know, letters, like so about Black literature, about Black texts, about um, diasporic texts, about thinking about Blackness and race. Um, but I think I really grew interested in thinking about being a historian because I was constantly trying to find you know, the kind of fictive, now I know it's fictive, we're trying to find kind of the origin point of where things began. So did things begin with, um, with reconstruction? No, because there's a whole era of antebellum slavery before that. Things begin with the antebellum period? No, there's a whole period, you know, that we now understand as part of, you know, um, 1619 and and the kind of iconic year that that is and, you know, British mainland North American history. Um, Did it begin there? No, because you have, you know, the um, uh, traffic of, of, Africans to the um, Caribbean, to um, um, Hispaniola, to Burinquen, um to Brazil that's beginning as early as the 1400s, uh, 1440s. So, um, you know, I found myself constantly trying to reach back and back and back and I finally stopped somewhere in the 1400s um, because one can only hold so much time in your head. Um, but that that was the project for me. The project was, okay, where do things begin? How do we get here, really, I guess is the, another way of thinking about the question. And where can we find out? Um, and for me, thinking about how people have written down their stories, um, and when people have not written their, down their stories, where we can find uh, p- uh, Black people in particular, people of African descent, um, articulating something about themselves, some arguing about the world that they're living in, some claim or stake about what is happening to them, that was really interesting to me. Um, And all of that was about primary sources, the archive and historical narrative. Um, And I say that as like kind of the academic work of doing history, but so much also of thinking um, about where things have began and about um, a kind of Black diasporic view of Blackness is very much out of, you know, thinking about family histories. Um, I'm doing um, work now on my own family history, um, thinking about how um, Black diasporic communities broadly, you know, grapple so much with genealogy, grapple so much with how they tell their own stories, the family union as a Black, you know, historical project, um, travel as a Black historical project. So, so much of that, and a lot of this is happening um, in, in my second book project, um, so much of that is also, you know, about you know thinking historically, and I have very much been a party to this and to thinking about this um, in how we, you know, curate. Our family photos, curate family texts, family items, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, being a historian academically, definitely something that kind of emerged for me in undergrad. But thinking historically and thinking about, you know, what are our origin points, where, where, and how do we think about slavery? um, How do we think about texts and sources? What are the things that we kind of cleave to, and how they've been passed down to us? That is something I feel like I've been doing for a very, very long time, and I think many other. Um, historians of of the global South have similar experiences with um, early, early young curatorial, um, curatorial work or young historical work um, in, in their childhood.
0: You also studied with the illustrious Ira Berlin.
1: I did, I did, I did. So after undergrad, um, I went and I completed my PhD at University of Maryland. And there I um, had the honor of studying under Ira Berlin, um, who is, um, who, who was um, probably, uh, the in, 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 before he passed in, I believe, 2018, um, the you know, greatest living um, American historian, um, I think, that we had at the, at the time. Um, It was the uh, the scholar who um, brought the idea of um, Atlantic Creoles and society with slaves versus slave societies to the study of slavery, which when you think about these, these framings now they seem, you know, like, of course, like very you know, commonsensical that, of course, there are Africans who are engaged in a whole range of ways with the Atlantic world as it's happening before it was um, being created, as it's being created, you know, um, in the wake of it being created. Um, And so, you know, like, these seem like common sense things, but in the study of history and in the Academy more Broadly, these uh, people who um, bridge those kinds of huge historic events, like slaving, Atlantic slavery, like um, uh, colonization, um, like European contact, were not necessarily the, the key figures in the story. Um, and so one of the um, things that I've been able to experience as I've grown as a scholar um, is, is not just the, the you know, historical mind of Ira Berlin, um, uh, but also changing ways of thinking about how to do history of this time period. So how do we take seriously time and place as actually doing something different with slaveholding societies and slavery, the slave trade as a project as it moves across the Atlantic, that there's not just one slave trade or one slave society that emerges, Um, that these, um, the way people labor, the kind of crops that are introduced, the kind of social structures that are created, um, the um, the cultural dynamism of Black life, um, Black diasporic life, that all of this is shaped and reshaped by time and place, and that we have to be incredibly granular and critical and rigorous in our analysis in our research in order to actually just even understand the Black people that we're seeing in the archive, these should be common sense, but <laughs> they were not. Um, and one of the things that um, that I read others, so many others, um, brought to the study of, of this topic and of this time period was a real call to um, be granular and be rigorous in our analysis and to take very, very seriously that um, Africans themselves are people who have who haven't bring their own experiences and their own histories to the new world. Um, And that does reshape the societies that they land in, the lands that they are forced to and forcibly migrated migrated to. Um, And I think that there's something also um, to be said about the kind of ways that this has reshaped not just our methods and our rigor for thinking about time and place, but also the kinds of narratives that we create. So thinking about micro uh, micro histories, thinking about biographies of individuals who are embarking in this world, that these can be narrative mechanisms that we can use to better understand these major, huge processes. And that in fact, we actually have to have the empirical um, in order to understand the impact of slaving in the Atlantic world, but we also actually have have to have these individual stories that help us refract some of these larger processes and get at the real humanities of the people who are who are you know navigating these spaces
0: that's a perfect bridge to my next question which has to do with your wonderful new book wicked flesh black women intimacy and freedom in the atlantic world which just came out um uh, 2020 with the University of Pennsylvania Press, and you build on this rich and uh, massive growing body of historical work to place African women and women of African descent center stage. And you, just as you were describing now, you use their lives to tell a very painful, uh, often, and complex story through their eyes. And uh, I was really amazed at how you cross time and space. You were, the book opens, and you were in in St. Louis and Goree on the Senegambian coast. Then uh, we go through the the horrors of the Middle Passage. Then we were in Haiti and Cuba. And then, of course, um, the last 40% or so of the book is in New Orleans under French and Spanish rule. And... Black women free and enslaved, you write, sought out profane, pleasurable, and erotic entanglements as practices of freedom. Can you tell us how forms of marriage and the family networks that came out of these uh, relationships helped Black women define the meaning of freedom for themselves?
1: Sure. So um, Wicked Flesh, Black Women Intimacy, and Freedom in the Atlantic World um, is part of research that I um, have been doing some time on thinking about how uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, um, in the U.S. context, in the Gulf Coast context, fits into broader frameworks of the African diaspora, fits into a longer history of um, an African history that is on, you know, our the uh, the western side of the, of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and um, what I, you know, set out to do um, in the book is really foreground African women and women of African descent um, and try to understand how they are navigating a world of slaves and of slavery as it's being developed. Um, so it start, begins in 1685 with the French Côte Noir, it ends in 1809, 1810 with the migration of, of saint may refugees that flood New Orleans. Um, and in between the 18th century is a really kind of iconic time period, iconic century, where the French and the British are beginning to actively enter into slave trading, Um, uh, they're beginning to um, set their sights on different Caribbean colonies, Um, uh, and everything is beginning to ramp up, and that includes the traffic of enslaved Africans across the Atlantic. It includes European interactions on the Atlantic African littoral Um, and it includes a kind of creation and codification of what Blackness was going to mean and also what gender was going to mean. And the two together, um, in this case, my, my interest was in what is this history of Black womanhood that begins to emerge and begins to take shape and be codified in this moment. Um, and one of the ways that I found that that was um, especially a topic of conversation um, is in the intimate um, and reproductive um, and gendered lives of, of African women. Um, obviously um, people have discussed this before, um, Jennifer Morgan's iconic book, Laboring Women, um, Sasha Turner's work. on on reproduction in um, in Jamaica, Um, and a lot of the work has centered on the ways that um, the the laws that are created around status following the mother become a really key feature of, you know, uh, cementing what slavery was going to be, inheritable um, status, inheritable labor regimes, um, and inheritable Blackness. Um, But I was also really interested in um, what are the ways that African women are sort of understanding this Um, and African women on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, And so one of the kind of tensions in this world is of course over kinship. Uh, and, and so intimacy and kinship are two key categories of analysis in the book. Uh, and um, one of the ways that we begin to see that um, is um, how um, African women are navigating their intimate partnerships, their sexual partnerships and also their understanding of, 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 of reproduction of motherhood, of. of of childbearing and of having of children, but also godparents, godparentage, parentage as well, um, and figuring out new kinds of partnership practices, uh, and um, and defining those and redefining those in this 18th century moment is really, really key. And that happens in different kinds of ways, in different um, in in each in each side of the Atlantic. Um, so when I begin the book, um, I situate it. Um, in Senegambia, um, particularly at the Comtoise of Saint Louis and Gorée. Uh, and I'm v- incredibly interested in the ways that um, African women enslaved as well as free African women of which the Comtois actually have significant populations of enslaved people, um, many of them who are women, many of them enslaved to um, uh, residents of the Comtois um, who are themselves free African women. So there's already kind of interesting gender dynamic there. Um, And very interested in um, how that dynamic works itself out, um, but also how free African women are creating some kind of sense of safety and security for themselves in the midst of incredibly masculine, incredibly heteropatriarchal, and incredibly violent um, everyday context. Like they're in the context where um, captives are rising up. um, uh, There's constant sort of threat or actual um, um, military conflict that's happening as Europeans, in this case, generally the French, but sometimes the British are having various disputes with um, various Wolof entities. There is a lot of just kind of uh, y- the ubiquity of sort of everyday threat is common. And so, how then do you um, protect yourself? How do you find patrons? How do you protect your dependents? Um, and how do you navigate that and remain? Um, not enslaved. And so some of this, some of this book is also about thinking about what is this meaning of freedom um, in a context where you don't necessarily have quite a separate of venture, but you definitely have um, the, uh, the relations of Atlantic slaving interceding on social relations. One of the ways that um, African free African women in particular do that is by um, Beginning to engage in a form of marriage practice uh, called Maria Dupe, or described as Maria Dupe, marriage in the manner of the country. Um, and this is a practice that um, allows um, African women, um, principally Wolof, also Labu, who are. Um, who are partnering with European men who are arriving at the Comtois, um, allows them to create formations and partnerships that are recognizable um, to um, Wolof entities, to um, lo- local entities, but also have to then be recognized by the French. They're not Catholic marriages. Actually, when you look at the etat Civil, the civil registers, there are very few Catholic actual Catholic marriages um, in this early 18th century moment, um, but they are recognizable partnerships. And so what's interesting to me is like kind of the creation of these forms of, of marriage that are um, the kind of fusion of, of of Wolof practices. So you have the, you know, um, um, the asking permission, you have the offering of some kind of gift on all sides. You have the huge um, wedding ceremony with um, with dances and feasts and everybody um, paying due deference. On all, on all ends one of the characters in the book who I um, who I talk about is Marie bold and um, there's a um, the way, one of the ways that she appears in the archive is that her father who was a Frenchman as far as white Frenchman as far as we're able to tell um, offers uh, a slave as well as um, um, uh, uh, livestock to her husband, um, as, to them um, as part of their kind of marriage gift. So it has a lot of the residences of Wolof of marriage practices and rituals and ceremonies. Um, and, e, e, and even as it's also recognized, um, all the, the women who are part of this are also recognized as wives by, by the French. And what it does is it gains them some kind of status within this kind of in-between liminal Comtois space, and I mean in between in the sense that there's there is a um, a clash of polities who are over the Comtois and the Louis uh, and uh, 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 Um, but not liminal in the sense of these not being African spaces of which they very very much are. So I want to make sure that that's. Um, that's clear. So, because they are um, seen as the wives of these um, of French authorities, they're able to make certain claims about um, having their children or their dependents hired out to the company. They're able to have their um, enslaved um, de- um, dependents, their enslaved labor, protected. Um, so, laws, laws, in the sense of like codes that the Comtés are passed that prohibit employees or anyone from selling any of the enslaved, the captives de caste, the, the, the slaves who are living in the households of the Comtés. Um, And it presumably um, protects them in some way from the kind of like endemic, you know, physical and intimate violence that is just everywhere. It's just all around. It's just in the water. Um, And so it's it's a mechanism. Um, And I think there's something really important about thinking about how um, African women and women of American descent are accessing mechanisms like this, strategies like this, in order to, um, in order to find some protection for themselves.
0: It's so powerful to see many of these mechanisms Uh, And these ways also survive the Middle Passage. You know, thinking back to the work of, say, Minson Price about, you know, kind of rejecting the older scholarship about, you know, human beings being empty vessels due to trauma uh, and brutality, but actually quite the opposite, carrying with them uh, their identities, their heritage, their history, their language, their practices. uh, And and, and can you tell us how, maybe just an example or two of how these also survived in, say, colonial Louisiana? Yeah, so one of
1: the things that is... um what, that's very interesting to me and one of the uh, reasons that I ground the study uh, so much in Senegambia um, is that there is um, a um, concentrated slave trade that um, that moves between Sen- San Luis and Goree in particular, but Senegambia broadly um, and the Gulf Coast. Um, so you have um, in the French period, I believe, the number is 23 ships um, that, uh, uh, travel um, this, uh, the Atlantic bringing a- enslaved Africans to Gulf Coast Louisiana. Um, the majority of those are from ports in Senegambia um, and those are the ships that come throughout the entire French period which is on um, the first ship lands in 1719 and the last um, the transition to the Spanish period is in um, effectively in 17 um, in 1769 and so it means it's a very truncated period it's only about um, 10, um, 10, 10 years or so. Um, it's uh, it's a concentrated mass um, movement, forced migration of Africans across the Atlantic. It becomes a way to begin to think about some of these big questions that have op- occupied historians for so long. So what does providence in the trade mean? What, um, what can we know about Africans who are um, arriving, who describe themselves or are described as Senegal, who um, describe themselves or are described as Bambara, as Mandinka, as, um, as Fulbe, um, as practicing um, Islam, of which in the Senegami region, is, um, uh, Islam is such a, a key um, system of belief um, in the region, and that translates across the Atlantic. So it gives us a chance to kind of think about how, um, what are the kinds of things that we can learn about diaspora in this context? The Gulf Coast is really iconic for that. Um, and And one of the things we begin to see is that a lot of uh, some of the practices that are happening at the Comtois, um, including um, Africans who are um, uh, who are laboring for the trading company, um, including um, a range of, of familiar um, familial uh, uh, arrangements, um, intimate partnerships. Um, you also see them um, see them in Louisiana. Um, a good example of this is um, practices of baptism. Um, use of god parentage in order to really solidify um, kinship structures. I didn't talk about this a second ago, but along with marriage, um, god, parentage becomes a really, uh, Dupe, god parentage becomes a really key mechanism that uh, Africans at the comtois, not just African women, but um, free enslaved a- across the board, use to create and kind of navigate patronage and kinship um, at St. Louis Gore. Um, you see that happening and extrapolating um, even um, more deeply in, um, in the Gulf Coast, Louisiana. And of course, it, uh, more deeply because now you're in a context in which losing your kin um, and being taken from kin and having your kin severed from you it, over the course of your lifetime is now very much a, a, a very much a key reality of, of, of life and of existence. Um, and the other reason I should say you see this is because of the the salience of sort of these being Catholic slaveholding societies, both at San Luis as well as in the Gulf Coast. Um, but the other thing you see um, along with uh, God parentage is um, you see in some ways uh, the French having an understanding of, of black women's sexuality, having an understanding of black women that parallels what the conversation about black women is at, at the at the and Contoise. So the Senegambian and Contoise, the French are um, constantly complaining about the kind of economic and social power that um, particularly free African women have. They call them parasites, they um, complain that they're managing the commerce, that they um, the, the directors are um, uh, you know, distressed, that there's that they, that they aren't able to hire any employees outside of the dependence that the, the women and the habitants um, are, are determined are, are employable. Like There's a whole set of relations that the French with the Comtois are are, um, are bound by, because they themselves are not there in Senegal to to colonize, although that is something that develops over the course of the 19th century. They themselves are a minority within a broad hegemony. they're a minority within the coastal context itself, and they're generally a minority at the actual Comtois, so they are bound um, by the customs and the demands of those around them, and that includes African women who are the householders in you know, empl- you know, employers, essentially, um, at St. Louis and Corée. Um, and so the French don't have kind words for, that, for them because of that. Um, those unkind words translate very much across the Atlantic. So the title of the book, That Wicked Flesh, um, that wickedness is absolutely a framing that the French have. Um, and they are concerned that enslaved women, um, and they'll talk about it in edicts and various things, they're concerned that enslaved women are sleeping with their owners in order to secure freedom. They are, they complain about enslaved women, um, who are licentious, and they are debased, and they have all of these kind of elaborate um, descriptions of how um, enslaved African women and women of African descent. Now, you know, as people are now being born, and um, the 1740s is sort of the first actual um, reproducing generation of of black um, of black people in, in uh, the Gulf Coast. Um, you know, they they complain that like these are you know such um, uh, 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 a uh, uh, wayward, <laughs> um, such a wayward um, population. Um, and that also mean, it comes hand in hand with a kind of presumption that um, African women and girls can be debased, that they can be assaulted and violated in all of the ways that become endemic to um, slaveholding. Um, and so you have these complicated contexts where um, enslaved women and girls are both presumed to be violated, violatable <laughs> um, and presumed to um, be um, sort of uh, uh, defined by that by that violation um, and the world in which the Gulf Coast is this creates a kind of you know volatile cocktail. cocktail. Um, because the world of the ghost coast is such that um, you have uh, this high number of, of young uh, men, um, um, European men who are arriving, um, and the propensity of violence is, is, is incredibly high. Um, but you also have um, the ways that enslaved women are trying to find space to navigate that. Um, and that means um, everything from finding and creating partnerships, intimate partnerships with um, enslaved men um, who themselves are, are able to secure some kind of employment with um, company um, uh, company officials and with the, um, with the colony itself. Um, there's a story in the book of uh, Louis Congo becomes the first um, Negro executioner um, in Louisiana um, and he does that and he's able to, he asks for the freedom of his wife. He actually gets um, to rent his wife. Um, from the company, except when the company needs her. So you have cases like this where men are apprenticing themselves in order to secure the emancipation, um, or at least the the company or the um, you know some some free company of of their of their wives. Um, and you also have the the ways that um, uh, African women are um, themselves also securing some kind of freedom um, or access to freedom as a result of. Um, being um, an intimate laborers, um, I mean intimate in proximity to um, nursing, um, cooking, um, managing the households of of slave slave owners or other kinds of officials at um, along the Gulf Coast, and you also have um, the kind of intimate intimate. Um, uh, cohabitation concubinage um, that is so um, often so often discussed when it comes in the context of free women of color um, but I want to stress that like that is one aspect of a kind of broader array of navigating how to secure a kind of space for freedom in a regime of slavery and the reality that the spaces for freedom are spaces of intimacy with the regime. You know, so even for enslaved men, they're able to secure some kind of apprenticeship because they are being intimate um, in the context of doing the work of empire. They're doing the work of of execute of, of the of being the executioner. They're doing the work of hunting down um, indigenous who are revolting against the French. Um, so that's still the intimate work of empire. So there's a story here about what does it take to secure freedom in a world of slaves and empire. Um, it, it requires a kind of intimacy um, that we don't necessarily always talk about when we're thinking about the the violence of this world.
0: Classic case of an atrocity generating situation. And and you do so well to stay away from, you know, a a simple language of resistance. And you talk about the right of refusal or the, you know, the uh, defense Um, and and it it works really well. And I was astounded by, you know, the fact that the archival documents that you uncover in multiple languages, uh, French and, and English and Spanish and so on, you know, um, the baptismal records, the slave ship records, the court documents, even the online databases, all of these are great and you exploit them so nicely, but also these sources are are often silent um, about the experiences of black women uh, and, and you, are very creative. You see these archival silences as possibilities. Not every historian has the ability uh, to do that. And so I want to give you an opportunity to tell us what what those possibilities are in these silences and how can historians productively work with them instead of what is sometimes uh, quite common, throwing up our arms in frustration or banging our head against the wall in, in despair.
1: Yeah. I mean you say that, but I also bang my head against
0: the <laughs> wall. We all we all Many do.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, because it is so this is what um, this is what I'll say. I think that, you know, one of the things that's really key for thinking about this period, um the 18th century, let's say, um, although I think it maybe applies even uh, to an earlier era, uh, is that we're not going to get if we're trying to do histories of, of, of Africans, Africans in the Americas, Africans along the um, along the coast, um, we're not going to get often um, sort of these long form essays, the kind of secret diary, you know, the kind you know, like the kinds of texts that you know are are passed down across generations and end up in archives and end up in libraries. Um, we're just not privy to that. Um, the historical subjects that, um, that are um, of African descent in this world are, um, are not necessarily writing down their experiences, and even if they were, the kind of construction of and genealogies of these archives and libraries are not often maintaining um, maintaining those experiences. Um, there's actually a really interesting book out about um, about thinking about libraries in the context of histories of slavery and what role libraries have, like the John Carter Brown Library, which you know John Carter Brown, major major slave slave trader, um, slave ship um, trader. Um, so so there's a lot of history here, I'm sure, to be said about you know how these um, how these documents themselves um, get down to us. Uh, but I think there's also the piece about how we talk about what kinds of sources are the sources that we use. Um, so I'll split this into, into just two quick answers. One is that um, you know, when we're reading the kinds of text sources that are, you know, for example, in my case, um, letters that governors were writing back to France, um, letters that company officials wrote back to France or wrote to each other, um, uh, laws and edicts, uh, account books, um, budget records, uh, slave trade, Um, directives and documents from trading company officials who are trying to give directions to ship captains about what to do with with the Africans in their hold. Um, Slave ship registers, like there's so many different kinds of material, a a whole genre of material that's really getting created in this moment. Um, What what I'm normally finding or normally looking for in that material is the one line, (laughs) the one sentence that maybe um, an enslaved woman spoke about an experience. Um, the, the one slave ship register that has a, a significant, a detailed account of the slave revolts, of which luckily there are more than one. Um, but you know, like that's the kind of thing we're looking for. We're looking for fragments and documents. Uh, I'm sorry, fragments and um, and scraps in these documents. And um, and that is really hard, <laughs> That's what I'm saying I banged my head against the wall. really hard, meticulous, um, granular work. It's work that we don't usually find just scouring a finding aid or a card catalog. It's work that, you know, Library of Congress subject headings are not helpful, um, although I find them very helpful for other reasons. Um, it's, it's, um, it's the kind of pumping the microfilm, you know, Step by step by step, or flipping the folio page, reading every single page, um, and so it's really intensive and really um, and really difficult. Um, but out of those sentences, a whole world of information can be generated, and a whole a whole sounding out of an experience um, can be can be formed um, if we are tuned to the whole lived full you know five senses of individuals lives in a particular moment so um, a line in the slave ship um, register which is how Marie Bode um, who I mentioned just a second ago um, Marie Bode is a woman she is um, you know, as I mentioned she's the um, she's uh, married to um, a white Frenchman she ends up um, um, embarking for reasons that are um, a whole array of reasons that are in the book um, embarking on a slave ship uh, to Louisiana one of the you know 23 slave ships ends up in Louisiana um, and uh, and disembarks there as well I, I share um, a lot about her biography a lot about her experience with her husband at San Louis and Coray, um, a lot of the reasons for her departure and um, and her and her landing in Louisiana and what that experience might have been like but really like what? That actually appears by her in the archive is just sentences, and she appears, for example, in the slave ship register um, of La Galafe, which is a ship that she um, embarks on as just like took on a mulatto passenger. That's it. That's all you get of her. <laughs> so, with all that, that is a. There's already something something very interesting there that that's that you know. You know, blinks out at you. It's like, wait, there's a Mulakles passenger, not an enslaved woman, not enslaved Mulatres, uh, on this ship. And it's remarkable enough that the captain himself has, you know, like he's writing it down in the margins of this register. Um, and that, then, that sentence then, though, can be knit with another sentence of documents that are being generated in Louisiana around her landing. And it can be knit with documents that are being generated in Senegal around um, her and her husband and the circumstances that lead to, you know, he ends up getting deported from Senegal and she ends up on a ship. Um, so there's all of these, you know, like moments that appear in the whole array of sources and they have to be quilted together. So not only is there like the granularity of like flipping manuscript pages, but then there's the... Um, kind of creativity and imagination that has to go into bringing these pieces together into some story that actually does make sense. Um, And for me, a lot of that is also um, a, a debt that is um, that I pay to you know historians who are thinking in terms of microhistory, who are thinking in terms of of, of biography and biographical stories, um, even as we're also thinking about these kind of broad broad picture analyses analyses of of the trade. Um, so there's a lot of that. It's hard. It's really heartbreaking sometimes because you try and follow a story, you try and like. You know follow a name and it's really a needle in a haystack and or the stories like just drop off because all you have is a few sentences here and there across four or five sources but you don't know what happens with the court case you don't know where a person ends up you don't know if, if they were able to secure their freedoms did they you know like were they actually executed or was execution you know stayed like you just you you never know um a lot of the cases and um i think that there's something. You know uh, unsettling about that but that unsettling this is also part of doing and, and sitting and sitting with this history the last thing i'll say though is um this is just for text sources because then there's a whole other archive of 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 sonic material there's an archive of of oral material of, of genealogical material um, hillary jones whose work is on um late 18th and 19th century Métis um, uh, community at St. Louis um, is done tremendous work in um, oral, art, oral histories and interviews and, and gene- genealogies. And so um, so there's also ways that, you know, the kind of materials that we find in the archive are not the only thing that we should even be using when we're studying um, uh, across the diaspora, that actually we should be finding really creative ways to use a whole range and array of sources and put them to work to, to understand the, the stories that we're trying to tell.
0: That's a a technique that Africanists have had to refine over generations. And it's also a nice bridge to what I wanted to ask you about, which is your digital humanities uh, scholarship, because I find your open embrace of the audiovisual uh, sources and the audiovisual power of the web and social media are really quite extraordinary. So, most recently, you co founded Life Code, Digital Humanities Against Enclosure. Listeners can find that at lifexcode.org. That's L I F E X C O D E.org. Um, who are the co conspirators in this project? What are the animating principles of this community uh, or network and what are you focusing on right now
1: so life code um, lifexcode.org is a um, is a collective uh, community of 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 labs and of individuals who are doing projects that are really trying to challenge um, and revise how we you know Uh, embrace and take up digital technology, digital humanities tools. And so how can we use um, um, digital humanities tools as a project against enclosure, um, against um, um, anti-racist, decolonial and anti-racist forms? Uh, And so um, it's an opportunity for us to um, build, um, to organize together, um, and to think about how our projects and our work um, is in cahoots and is, is co-conspiratorial um, with organizing that's happening on the ground in so many different ways. Um, and so there are a few projects that are actually really exciting right now. And folks can check out the website and um, and see, you know, you know if you're interested in collaborating, please let us know. Um, there's a few projects that we're really excited about right now. One is Sayed Electric Marronage, um, which I co-curate uh, with um, Dr. Jamara Figueroa, um, who is at um, Michigan State University. Um, and that is a collective of, Of of scholars, writers, artists, um, black and brown um, femmes, um, queer femmes who are um, interested in and thinking about how to use the digital to um, to abscond, to disrupt, um, to challenge and to create solidarities. Um, And so we um, run, we create art um, and curatorial projects both on the site but also in different spaces. So an exhibit that um, that we hosted, which I believe is still up, is actually at um, hosted by MSU Museum, I believe. Jose Arturo Ballester is a Puerto Rican artist who uh, did an exhibit, um, he was supposed to be in person but then COVID happened, um, did an exhibit at MSU, um, at MSU uh, Museum and that's also hosted online and it's accessible um, through the website um, and is accessible across the board as in like, um, uh, we tr- um, uses um, accessibility technology to make art come alive for people. And so we have, um, so we have him as artist in residence. We are currently hosting Rebecca Moise, who is a Zimbabwe American um, queer artist who is doing tremendous work at the intersection of masculine inheritance and slavery and performance art. Um, We have um, uh, the electric blog, which is run by a team of, of, of electricians who are amazing. Graduate students from all around the country um, who are doing fantastic work in their own right and also are thinking about these ideas of fugitivity and absconding and um, feminist thought, Black feminist thought. So we have um, that as a space that we um, that we abscond to, abscond with, abscond out of, like just so many things. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, humane <laughs> way of interacting with this, with this theory and this work um, of you know, this, this, this academic work that can be so grueling and so, um, so crushing to women. Of of color, especially. So that's one project um, that is going to have, um, you know, continue to expand in some really exciting ways. Um, another one that, um, that I run with um, a team of folks uh, is called Keywords for Black Louisiana. Um, and that project has three sort of aims, which, and all of them being to highlight um, the African and African diasporic history. Louisiana. There are so many amazing documents that um, I was able to use and access for the book, but are not necessarily like out there and accessible, not necessarily digitized or if digitized are not necessarily being used. And so um, each of those projects is about thinking about how to make Black Louisiana history in its broad, global, beautifully rich and creative senses, um, accessible, um, relatable, Um, and do it in conversation with with folks in Louisiana, Black folks in Louisiana. So right now, we've got a project on Black historians of Louisiana who have been researching Louisiana. We have a project on the colonial documents um, that is um, going to have a um, micro edition, a a set of scholarly documents published by the journal Scholarly Editing. We are working on that um, now. Um, And we have a team of folks who are working on how to create essentially sort of ontologies of of fugitivity out of um, the Louisiana runaway slave ads. So um, they're working on that project as well. A couple of our independent labs are doing some really exciting work. One is by um, Sarah Pruno, who is um, recently graduated with her um, PhD from University of Wisconsin, is working on Bomba and her PhD, um, but is going to be doing a digital edition of Fernando Pico, who is a a Puerto Rican scholar, um, did a lot of work on slavery and in the early, early colonial period of Puerto Rico's history. Um, it's going to be creating a digital edition of his documents. And so we're really excited about, about that and how that also, like, will hopefully um, create a, another conversation about Afro-Latinidad in Puerto Rico, afro puerto rican um, histories of slavery, histories of Blackness in Puerto Rico. Um, so, you know, I guess in a lot of ways, like, a lot of the work that we're doing um, is, is about, you know, the, these histories that are not necessarily talked about um, that have been erased or muted in particular ways, um, but are there. And the black communities that are, um, th- that are the legacies of this history are in these places and they still exist and they are still talking and they still um, are part of this kind of like dynamic cultural, um, cultural legacy. And so, um, so we're doing work around that, but, you know always expanding, always interested in working with people. So please reach out if you want to.
0: I encourage everyone to go visit lifexcode.org, where you can see uh, these projects unfolding. And this reminds me, and this is probably a good way to start bringing our fascinating conversation to a close about the importance of collaboration and network building and solidarity, as you were speaking and as you're, as Uh, life code demonstrates is so central to digital practice in a way that conventional, let's call it analog scholarship, at least in the, you know, traditional Africanist disciplines of, say, history, political science, anthropology, and so on, uh, are not. Um, You know, scholars in the humanities and social sciences tend to inhabit a profession that is structured around traditional disciplines and your digital work uh, is an example of interdisciplinarity in in the most capacious sense of the word and these traditional disciplines often evaluate us and our scholarship based on individual accomplishments right you can see this for example in promotion and tenure processes um, and also in the uh, job postings uh, that you see so based on your already extensive experience in this uh, digital world. Um, How can this tension be productively addressed? Uh, The fact that so much of academia is based on uh, the individual, and that's where the highest rewards are. And instead, some of the most exciting uh, work is actually this kind of collaborative uh, work. Uh, long-winded question uh how can this tension be productively addressed how have you uh, perhaps addressed it and, and can it even be resolved
1: you know peter these are big questions i think there is something so important about collaborative work i, I think there's just no question i think there's a, in a weird way um the academy and the humanities in particular um is really kind of insular in how it centers um, and refuses to compensate because it's not as though our work isn't collaborative, it just refuses to acknowledge and or compensate the kind of collaborative work that we see pretty much everywhere else um, in other professions that we see and that our undergraduates are going to go into jobs where they will be part of a team and will need to learn how to work with a team to collaborate, to um, bring in other ideas, to come to a a composite, not a kind of individual um, narrative. Um, uh, And so I think that I think that we are actually very behind in bringing collaborative work into, um, into the work that we do and to take it seriously, to compensate it adequately, to recognize it as um, as hard, as the hard, rigorous, um, intensely intellectual work that it is. Um, collaborative scholarship, collaborative work broadly is absolutely central to, to what I do. It's, it's how I even came to thinking about um, DH as a, a space that I would want to think with and in. Um, so I came to digital humanities through radical women of color, online organizing and online conversations um, and not through necessarily academic work. Um, and collaborative work is also really critical even if it was just in the academy, it's really critical to DH work. Um, one of the things that you learn really on doing any digital project is that your, um, something is gonna be limited. Either your time space continuum is gonna be limited or your actual skill set is gonna be limited. And collaborating with technicians, collaborating with programmers, with developers, with website designers, with podcast editors, with librarians, archivists, like your project is stronger just at the academic level by collaborating with all these other entities and units and individuals in the university for life code and for my interest in digital humanities broadly against enclosure. I strongly believe that DH projects have to do also they're collaborating with groups and organizations and communities on the ground and so whether that means that your project is about, you know, the Tulsa race riot and you know like if you have not then talked to survivors of the Tulsa race riot or you have not dealt with um descendants or, or, of Greenwood or people in the community then you're not actually doing the fullness of your project um, and so you know this it's 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 a mandate really like I don't think actually you can do VH in a way that is rigorous and generative without um, being collaborative. Um, The question is how do we push our institutions to to recognize it Um, and to see the collaboration itself As labor, and not in like that quantifying, you know, here is 50% of what you did, or here's another 25%. Because anybody who knows, anybody who's had a joint position, (laughs) you know, uh, which is many of us in like women's studies and history, your Africana studies and history, um, African studies and history, um, anybody who's had a joint position knows that that percentage thing, that's just false. Like either way, you're doing 100% of the work, 100% or more of the labor and the time. Um, That's just for, Um, compensation schemes and and that is not a humane way to operate. And so I think there's a lot that needs to be done. I don't have answers, <laughs> um, and I don't necessarily um, exhibit myself as an example. Being still an assistant professor, um, you know, hopefully we'll have tenure um, tenure soon. But you know, you just never know. Um, I do know though that um, part of my job is to continue to try and do the best work that I can, and that work is impossible without effective collaborations. Um, I also know. That that if if for those of us who are doing collaborations we cannot rely solely on the metrics of the university or the academy to define the ethics of that collaboration. So the university already is not really recognizing collaborations broadly. And the terms that they set out for what is an ethical collaboration are insufficient. So we need to do a better job, particularly those of us who are working with marginalized populations or populations that are outside of the university, who maybe are vulnerable in ways that those of us on campus are not. um, We have to set out a, a, a higher, Call a higher um, um, rubric, a stronger rubric for our ethics, um, than is going to be bequeath to us. We have to think about it in terms of a humanity and a humanness that is um, asking, you know, our our partners, you know, what they need, what they want, being being willing to hear no if a collaboration is not feasible or not desired, not just kind of you know, you know, saying, Well, you know, nothing's told me I can do this research if I want to. Um, Thinking about, you know, what are kinds of um, compensating people for their labor, um, not expecting free interviews, free conversations, free anything like so there's some very specific terms upon which we should be thinking about how to make collaborations as ethical and generative as possible. um, Even as we are also pushing our institutions to recognize the really hard work that people are doing Um, on the ground um all the time all the time in universities people are collaborating it's just invisible
0: these are really really valuable and important points uh especially the you know your emphasis on ethics uh rather than on metrics and i mean who else is going to make this argument uh, in the modern university at least in 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 the global north than than um you know, uh, uh, humanists. Uh, It seems to me that that this is just uh, incredibly significant. And hopefully, you know, our colleagues will listen and um, and change their ways, it doesn't mean, of course, that we don't continue to produce in the analog world and in, in more conventional ways. And so, I mean, you're an excellent example of that do, with uh, wicked flesh, uh, uh, black women, intimacy and freedom in the Atlantic world coexisting quite comfortably and snugly uh, with life code, digital humanities against enclosure. So I think uh, you're really a, a, a great model for also you know, not just uh, inspiring younger scholars to, to do both, that you can do both productively uh, and in sort of, uh, you know, uh, paradigm shifting ways, but also our colleagues, especially older colleagues who are less comfortable uh, with these uh, more postmodern, shall we say, approaches uh, to historical scholarship and, uh, and other forms of uh, humanities and, and social science scholarship. So um, thank you so much, uh, Jessica Johnson, for uh, your time and insights and in your work. And hopefully we can connect uh, again soon in person rather than, uh, than via Zoom. And, and good luck with uh, uh, all of your exciting activities at Johns Hopkins uh, and beyond.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical support is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. You can stream and download all episodes on our website, afropod.aodl.org. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. To get in touch, send email to alegi, that's A-L-E-G-I, at msu.edu. Thanks for listening.